Welcome to the Hex Tonight Podcast. Yet again, I am David. And I remain Ivan. And uh, today we are talking about uh, major historic battles and interesting ways, um, different tactics and kind of elements of, of these situations can be used to inspire interesting uh, miniatures gaming, war gaming, and maybe even uh, campaign ideas for role-playing games. But we're trying to make a bit of a shift uh, from our long-running conversation about classical kind of standard uh, fantasy role-playing games to something a bit different that kind of expands out further into different types of games. Yeah, and um, also I think things that could maybe get you start thinking about uh, different kinds of games, even if you are running a role-playing campaign. Um, I will bet that most people have never thought about um, running a campaign based on either of the topics we have for today. So uh, I think that'll be really exciting. Um, so Definitely. Uh, so what I was picking out uh, when you emailed me with the idea that we're going to talk about a battle, um, I figured we would talk about one battle each. And uh, my pick is one of my deep, deep passions, which is the First World War. Um, and specifically, the opening campaign on the Western Front in 1914. Um, now, the First World War is one of those things that simultaneously is not really on most people's sort of consciousness. Not in the same way that you know World War II is with Saving Private Ryan, everyone's watched Band of Brothers and so on. Uh, although I think with the hundred year anniversary, uh, the last couple or you know a couple years ago, uh, I think it became a lot more. You know, we got like uh, the Battlefield One video game and those YouTube channels like the Great War and stuff. Right, nineteen seventeen. Uh, eighteen. Um, well, no, I mean that that movie. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That was a great film too. That is well recommended for anybody. Um, I think it was another one too. But I don't remember. There was like a smaller production, like British one. And there's been a few over the years. There was the Canadian Passchendaele, which is pretty good. And there's a couple of this. Uh, so there's stuff out there. I think it's a lot more accessible now than it maybe was uh, ten years ago. Um, but it's still not super well known, and that makes it interesting uh, for gaming because sometimes it's nice to have something that where people don't immediately know what to expect. Well, um, yeah, you can sink your teeth into doing some research and digging mm -hmm. out some kind of novel stuff for your game. So, Absolutely, cool. and we do like to research here. So we're not going to go into, you know, you could sp spend like years and years talking about this, uh, but I want to give a brief overview of uh, what the campaign sort of unfolds like on the Western Front in 1914, as the uh, the Germans embrace uh, their somewhat famous plan known as the Schlieffen Plan, which was a you know this uh, sweeping hook through Belgium uh, to knock out the French. Uh, the goal was to advance as quickly as possible, uh, knock the French out of the war before the British could show up in force, and then swing back east uh, to fight the Russians. Uh, since it was believed that Russia would mobilize a lot slower, so that was really the option. And the um, Russians definitely had their own problems at the time, too. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of lead up that Russia was this kind of backwater um, power. 
with a lot of internal problems, but there was also the fact they were rapidly modernizing. And there is this sort of famous statement uh, in Germany that essentially, like, the war had to come now because otherwise it would be lost if they waited. Uh, the the Russians, with, you know, near-infant manpower and resources, once the economy and their industry was stronger, uh, that would be curtains. So the, there was this sort of idea of seizing an opportunity to have the war. And, of course, that presented itself. Uh, but for our purposes, uh, we're just looking at the West because uh, otherwise it gets a little bit too sprawling, I think. Right. Well, it's funny the way you introduced that. It sounds like the French fell for the same basic plot and strategy twice in a row. Kind of, yeah. Uh, it's not exactly <laughs> the same, but it's close right. enough that it feels a little... Because, um, yeah, World War II, the Germans would also go into Belgium, uh, as well as pour through the Ardennes. Uh, well, but, right. you know, but didn't the French think they had, like, the invincible line? Yeah, as a part... Like, unbreakable? Part, yeah, well, it was unbreakable. It didn't break. Uh, the problem was that um, you couldn't... Since Belgium and France were, if not allies, but at least were, you know, well-disposed towards each other, mm -hmm. uh, you couldn't build a line of, like, bunkers and fortifications pointing like giant artillery into the Belgian border. Uh, that doesn't look great when you're looking to fight on the same side again. Uh, so sure. you're essentially, you can only build it so far. And the heavily forested areas around the Ardennes wasn't uh, heavily fortified because it was believed that, that those would basically be impassable to modern armies. And of course, uh, they turned out to be less impassable than previously anticipated. The rest is history. <laughs> uh, however, the Maginot line did not fall. Uh, there were a couple of abortive assaults on it, and they kind of didn't go anywhere. And the Germans realized pretty quickly this was above their pay grade. So they just waited it out. And eventually, when France had surrendered, they had to like send over a runner and tell them, like, the war is over, you can come out. And that was it. <laughs> so technically, they got their money's worth. The line didn't fall. Um, but, you know. The advantage of t tank divisions is you can move them to another place. Right. Um, but, I mean, this all started – you're talking about the start. So they didn't have mm -hmm. tanks. So so how were they able to move quickly around through Belgium and through the Ardennes? Right. So uh, when we're talking 1914, uh, the amazing thing is that it uh, they advance at the exact same speed that armies have advanced pretty much since, like – you know, the Romans fighting the Phoenicians, which is walking. Yeah. Uh, in, inside Germany, uh, you had the advantage of railroad systems. And one of the things that everyone had kind of paid attention to in the American Civil War was the use, early use of railroads to move troops. And the Germans <laughs> had paid particular attention to that. Uh, and they had taken advantage of that when they fought the French in 1870. So the entire German rail network was very carefully planned out, and it was all subordinate to military control. So you could concentrate huge amounts of troops uh, on the border when you need it and, you know, uh, very quickly, very efficiently and more efficiently than really anyone else could. Um, but from there, you're on foot and it's a long way to Paris. Mm. Uh, so everything worked on this very tight uh, schedule. Essentially, the army would swing through Belgium uh, where they would have to overcome the Belgian fortresses, uh, which are fairly modern advanced fortresses for that time then fight their way through, they would have to brush away the British expeditionary force, then hook down and take Paris. And then it was hoped that once Paris fell, the French would be out of the fight. That was, mm. you know, in the in 1870, the French had essentially lost 
after a couple of big battles where their army was surrounded and rather than risk their lives or waste their lives uh, pointlessly, the emperor had surrendered. <laughs> so it was hoped that that was the vision. Uh, there's this idea uh, that generals didn't anticipate that it would be a, a brutal slaughter. And that's not really true. Like nobody went into the war expecting that there wouldn't be a lot of deaths. What they expected was that these big sweeping maneuvers would outmaneuver the enemy and therefore you would have a couple of big bloody battles like you had had in 1870. And then that would kind of be it. You know, the war would be over. And a bit of bloodshed up front would avoid, you know, there wouldn't be this long grinding uh, four or five year conflict. Right. Turns out that wasn't the case. However, uh, so the initial advance into Belgium, Belgium is obviously a tiny little country. Uh, they had no, with a small, a modern, but not that modern army. They had little ability to, you know, stand up to the, remember Germany is not only the most populous country in Europe, they're also the most heavily industrialized. They were kind of the yardstick for like military training and equipment. Hmm. So Belgium really has no chance, but they fight anyway. And they fight quite bravely. Um, the fortresses end up, while they get reduced quickly, and that would become sort of a uh, a sign of fear, because uh, basically by now, like the weight of heavy artillery could reduce any fortress you could kind of point it at. And the Germans had ample heavy siege artillery, uh, but they, reducing the forces took a couple of days longer uh, than they had planned to. And it would turn out that in this case, every day would end up counting. Um, the Belgians would end up uh, resorting to flooding most of their country in order to uh, inhibit the German advance. You know, much of Belgium is below the water level and, is, you know, there's a complex system of dams and drainage and so on to keep right. it habitable. So they deliberately flooded much of it. Wow. Uh, and the result is that like a sliver of Belgium remained under Belgian control for the entirety of the war. The Germans essentially like besieged it. Uh, but there was never a reason to like try and capture the rest of it. It didn't really serve a purpose and it would only have, you know, the Belgians would have fought like wild dogs to keep it. Mm -hmm. So, so the cutting, um, mm -hmm. did, I guess, did anyone uh, have an, ha had that type of heavy artillery that took down the force fortresses? Was that used in other places? Did anyone, have any understanding of its effectiveness before that, or were they just totally caught flat-footed? Well, I think everyone understood uh, to an extent, uh, but there's a lot of factors that have changed in artillery. Hmm. Uh, so if you look at, like, the American Civil War, you know, 1860-ish, right. 1 to 64-ish, artillery is still pretty much firing over open sights. you got to be able to see hmm. the target, and they are mostly firing either, like, solid shot, like, actual cannonballs or like canister um firing like high explosive shells they existed but it was a question of like you know a burning fuse and like a timed fuse and right. they were not particularly effective um the idea of firing indirectly like firing at targets you can't see was still very much in its infancy it started showing up you know we start seeing it in uh, 1870 and when the Russians and the Japanese fought in 1904, 1905, we see some of it, but it was kind of a new thing and nobody had really fought like a major like land war where that sort of artillery was, uh, was the norm. So armies were walking into, uh, walking into battle with artillery that could fire more rapidly, um, which could aim again more rapidly after it shot and which could be fired without seeing, like you could fire, you know, map coordinates. So the idea that 
artillery had gained so much power uh, was something that definitely took uh, people by surprise. Uh, but the Germans were clearly counting on this. Like they had specifically requisitioned actually Austrian heavy guns uh, <laughs> for the destruction of these fortresses. So it was certainly planned for. Um, and I don't know that anyone necessarily thought these fortresses would hold up indefinitely. But the fact that they were reduced in a matter of days was certainly a shock. Like most of them weren't that heavily garrisoned because it was, you know, nobody assumed you would need to. Well, sure. I mean, that that's kind of a historical standard, I think, where you, you can you can rely on, I don't know, a, I mean, being on castles, the short right? end of like four to one odds. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. totally. So you can fight off four to one odds or maybe even depending yeah. on the technological difference, like 10 to one odds and you people have held out. So, oh, absolutely. Why, like, why would well, you overman fortifications like that? No, exactly. And like each of those guys has to have, you know, like omelets for breakfast and, you know, a cup of water every day. <laughs> like that all adds <laughs> up when you're talking about thousands of men, right? Right. So, yeah. Um, and, you know, if you're Belgium, you're a tiny country with a small military. Like there is no no plan in the world that will give you an army that will withstand a French or German invasion. That's just mm. not going to happen. So relying on fortifications seems like it makes reasonable sense. Like you say, it's a multiplier, right? Right. So a really um, big one usually. <laughs> yeah. And in this case, maybe that is how it turned out. Like I said, it only took a couple of days. But when the time schedule is as tight as it is. Um, now, while this is happening, uh, the French are executing their own plan, which, if I'm not getting it wrong, is uh, Plan 17. Um, now, in 1870, the French had fought uh, relatively um, defensively. Uh, they had relied on the superior range of their rifle, mm -hmm. um, and they had hoped to engage the Germans, or the Prussians primarily, in long-range combat, and being fairly static in a lot of ways. Um, and the typical engagement in 1870 would look something like, you know, Prussian patrols stumble into some French troops. The French troops shoot them to pieces. Uh, the Prussians fall back. Uh, and then at the end of the afternoon, every Prussian within five miles has marched to the sound of the guns, as they said. And now the French are outnumbered and being pelted by uh, Prussian heavy artillery. Hmm. <clears throat> so the French looked at that after their defeat, especially since the lack of maneuver and the lack of initiative was led to, led to the surrender of the French army at Sedan. And they drew the conclusion that warfare in the future would need to be more aggressive. It would need to be more high pace. And that meant that you should emphasize the offensive. And this is kind of the conclusion everyone had drawn. So throughout the 1800s, you get the evolution of the rifle, right? Right. Move from smoothbore weapons that can fire at, you know, 50, 100 yards to rifles that can fire at three times that distance. And that had taken a heavy toll. Um, but once we start getting breech loaded weapons that could be loaded in a matter of seconds, uh, the amount of firepower increases exponentially. And there were kind of two different solutions to it. Um, although neither would end up necessarily being perfect. The mm -hmm. American solution, in a way, during the Civil War was to try and use maneuver. You know, the American generals were fighting in a huge country and you could essentially move wherever you wanted. Right. You know, so you can try and outflank a position. If the enemy is dug in, ideally you want to put them in an untenable position. They have to abandon that. You always want to be entering the battle, but holding the best ground, right? Yeah, so you, yeah and you got to maintain your supply lines and communication too. 
times. Right. So if you can cut them off, now they're obliged to either fight you or move. Um, so movement kind of became the answer to it. But that's not really possible in Europe. You can't just roll through the Italian border. Sure. <laughs> uh, so the solution, uh, which had worked in 1866 and 1870, was that if the attacking infantry is disciplined enough and they move quickly enough, even though they will take heavy losses, they will still carry through the assault. And that mm -hmm. had worked in both cases. The problem is, when we get to 1914, is that we're just at the tipping point. We have gone from, you know, single-shot breech-loaded rifles to, like, modern bolt actions holding, you know, five or eight shots. Mm -hmm. um, your machine guns are starting to show up. Like, the balance has essentially shifted to the defender. But nobody, like, that's a realization you kind of have to make, like... You know, you Being have to. There. <laughs> yeah, you kind of have to. Like, you know, people had seen like the Balkan Wars. Uh, they had seen the war between Russia and Japan. Um, and people had paid attention to the developments there. But there was still the belief that we weren't at the tipping point yet. Determined, uh, dedicated, brave infantry assaults would be able to overcome the enemy firepower if you attacked on a narrow enough front. Hmm. And, and once you could break them, then your cavalry would be able to follow up and exploit. You know, hmm. there's this how everyone had done it for a long time, it was going to work one more time. So the French had put heavy emphasis on the attack. Uh, they had an army that was supported mostly by very excellent but very light artillery. Uh, they had a heavy cavalry component. Everyone did, but the French in particular. Um, mm -hmm. And famously, of course, they wandered into war with the same uniforms they had worn 40 years earlier with dark blue jackets, bright red pants. Uh, which looks very dashing and striking, uh, but compared to, you know, the field gray German uniforms or the very sort of muted British khaki, uh, they were definitely like, you know, they're not really what we associate with like modern warfare, right? Of course, yeah. Um, so the French launched themselves into an offensive. And they're also eager to retake the two provinces in Alsace and Lorraine that they had lost. Um, and... The Battle of the Frontiers, as it's called, is a absolute disaster for the French. Uh, they are met with holding forces, essentially, by the Germans. But the lesson that everyone was going to realize real quick is that a much smaller force supported by modern artillery, you know, modern rifles and machine guns, can hold off a much larger attack. And the French get absolutely savaged. I think in the couple of months that the Battle of the Frontiers lasts, I think something like one in six of all French losses in the entire war was incurred. Wow. It is just absolutely brutal, you know. Troops go forward in close ranks and just get mown down. Uh, it is dreadful. So the French are in a uh, state of panic. Um, meanwhile, the German hook that is sweeping through, they've negotiated their way through Belgium. They've gotten past the fortresses. They've overcome the flooding. And they are steaming as quickly as they can. But every single day, it's, you know, another fight for another field a little bit up. And the French keep having a hard time regrouping, you know, mm -hmm. to set up a proper defense. Um, the British get thrown into the fight with the uh, British Expeditionary Force, um, which was a very small army. <clears throat> and it was unique for being one of the few professional armies in Europe. Everyone was a volunteer. They were a long-term professional. They had often, while they may not have seen combat experience, uh, they had often several years of service. And some had seen experience overseas in the colonies. Mm -hmm. And they had experience with modern weaponry. They could fight in a dispersed type of way, but they had very little heavy equipment and they, it was a very small army. Um, the German Kaiser famously quipped that they could just send the Berlin police force to arrest them and that would take care of that. <laughs> 
And the British, while they have much more recent experience fighting, you know, the Boer War and so on, <clears throat> they're about as unprepared for the reality of modern warfare. And famously, it comes to a point at the Battle of the Mons, uh, where the British take up positions along a river and <clears throat> end up fighting a um, desperate holding action against the entire weight of the German army. Um, and mm -hmm. while they are extremely effective, um, there's a legend, and it may be an exaggeration, that the British rifle fire is so rapid and so thick that the Germans think uh, that they're on a machine gun fire. Uh, but eventually the British likewise have to retreat and they carry out a uh, lengthy fighting retreat, you know, fighting desperate rearguard actions all along the way while trying to get to a point where they can gain enough ground to regroup themselves. Eventually, it all comes to an end at the Battle of the Marne, so what's sometimes called the Miracle of the Marne, hmm. where um, the German advance has been... While this has been going on, while the Germans have been successful, they are still perpetually losing men. Even successful attacks are very costly. Sure. All it takes is one machine gun to, you know, mow down, you know, several companies of troops. Mm -hmm. An assault column, which is caught in the open for even like a few minutes of artillery fire is uh, likely to, you know, be combat ineffective after that. Mm -hmm. So they're perpetually losing men. Their supply trains are uh, worn out. Um, Remember, once you're in foreign territory, you're on foot or on horse for the mm. most part. So everything, motorized transport is very limited. Uh, so food, artillery, ammunition, everything has to be brought up. And if you're out of artillery ammunition, the advance is pretty much, you know, it's halted until you can catch up. Uh, well, it's funny because, I mean, that was the exact same problem they had in World War II, too. They never figured out how to straighten out their supply lines. Yeah, it's not just the French that... Um, makes the same mistake again. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the problem that if you couldn't walk to Paris, we shouldn't walk to Moscow, uh, comes back again as well. <laughs> um, but the other problem is that the two sort of main pincers of the German force are starting to get too far apart. And eventually, one of the commanders panics. And he starts pulling, instead of continuing the advance, he starts pulling closer because he's terrified of what is at, exactly what is going to happen, which is the Allies are going to counterattack and put a wedge between them. Mm -hmm. And about the same time, uh, Mulkey, the younger, as he's nicknamed, uh, who was overall commander, uh, has a straight n nervous breakdown. And there's a couple of days where the German army is essentially out of command uh, because he just has a panic attack. The yeah. pressure and the anxiety is just too much. And the French launch a counterattack with the regrouped British army uh, and with very hastily assembled forces that have been, you know, reserves that have been brought up and re-equipped, often like re-equipped with modern weapons mm -hmm. pretty recently, and get thrown forward and it halts a German attack. And once it's bogged down, it's not going to happen. Um, sure. So the solution then becomes if you can't break through at the front, you got to go around. You can't go around to the east because eventually there's a Swiss border. So we get what's called the race to the sea as each army tries to outlap the other uh, in a series of battles with each try to like outflank the enemy army and push through. And the other army is doing the same thing. And as they keep like bounding towards, eventually you get to the, you know, the British Channel. And once you're there, that's it. Uh, the winter or fall weather, winter weather is coming. Everyone starts digging and the front will mostly remain there for the next four years as barbed wire and machine guns and gas uh, makes it a pretty good image of hell on earth, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what everyone, the grand, I don't know, I guess the layman 
mm-hmm. assumes World War One is like. Most of us, I think, just hear about like Archduke Ferdinand, and then there is kind of like the domino effect of all the uh, diplomatic, mm. uh, the alliances all kind of fall in line, and before anyone knows what's going on, there's this war, right. and then everyone else's brain just jumps to somehow people get stuck in, stuck in trenches. They got machine guns, and we throw tear gas at <laughs> each other, well, mustard gas, and right chlorine and horrible shit that people yeah and i mean to an extent it's one of those things where that's simultaneously the answer and it's also simultaneously not you know Mm. um but i think the opening campaign is interesting because it's a it's kind of the confrontation between the old world of you know cavalry and feathered helmets and glory and dash people are volunteering to go you know fight to protect belgium or free germany from uh for being surrounded by enemies and, you know, mm. like, you know, people said the war was going to be over by Christmas. Uh, mm. And while that is obviously stupid in hindsight, uh, from the perspective of the men at the time, I don't know that it necessarily was. Like most wars recently had been short. Uh, the Russo-Japanese War was a year or so. The Balkan str- troubles were about a year. Um, the Prussian Wars had been, for the most part, a couple of big battles and that was it. Uh, like, mm. So the American Civil War being a long, drawn-out conflict was viewed as an aberration, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, So it's kind of the last gasp of, like, the old romantic world and then contrasted with what became this, like, grinding war of machinery and mayhem. Like, it's a war where the idea of fighting a war of attrition became, like, a national strategy. If we kill each other, but we can kill 10% more men every day, we will outlive them, mm-hmm. you know? Well, it's the, uh, the whole thing with total war and not uh-huh. not just like I'm going to set up my army with this set of resources and this is what they have. And when they're out, when they're out of supply, when they're out of food, out of bullets, low, you know, they can't defend themselves. It's over. It's decided. So right. Course. So this is, you know, a war of nations like modern nation states yeah. gathering their all of their resources and putting them towards the purpose of, you know, killing each other. Right. Uh, and yeah, you know, so and it's one of those things, like especially in like literature of the time, it's very like apocalyptic because uh, it was for the people involved. You know, it was, of course, impossible to understand, like how something on the scale and uh, level could happen even. So I think it's really interesting um, while it's certainly grim. Um, but I think from a gaming perspective, the opening campaign also has a lot of interesting things because it is a campaign of movement. You know, mm-hmm. like the whole path from uh, like shooting begins, I think, in August and until November, it's essentially like a continual war of maneuver. Troops are moving around. They're fighting. You know, like if you were in a German regiment, you would have a different fight like every day in a different location. Yeah. Uh, we don't really have this like um, the positional grind where third battalion has been on a hill 249 for like six months and haven't moved. Mm hmm. Uh, so I think that makes it really interesting. Um, and I think it has a really interesting uh, perspective on technology. Uh, like we talk a lot about, you know, fantasy gaming, because that's, I think for both of us, kind of like our big passion when it comes to role playing games. Mm-hmm. You know, we like orcs and swords and all that stuff. Um, oh, magic systems. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, like all that stuff. Um, but, you know, this is a conflict where at least in 1914, obviously things would get more medieval in the trenches. Uh, but this is kind of the first, like, truly modern war in that sense. Like, 
casualties are not inflicted at bayonet point or with sabers anymore. They're inflicted with rifles. You know, soldiers lying in cover, rapid firing like magazine fed rifles at the enemy. You know, like we all have the we've all seen like the video clips of like soldiers like hunched over the machine gun and like rattling away. You know, you can see the right. belt like um, so it's a. You know, like imagine if you're playing your fantasy campaign and everyone is a wizard with unlimited uh, spellcasting. Like that's essentially the situation, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, you <laughs> you can have it's it's that fire point, you know, for mm-hmm. for people that that's such a big difference between those two gaming styles. You can have one guy, and you know he's got this field of vision, mm-hmm. and he's got full control over that field. So you got to figure out a way to maneuver around him. Mm-hmm. Or better, you know, like in a larger scale thing, if you got rockets or some type of heavy, heavy vehicle, it could be a sci-fi thing where you've got a mech sure. call in the plasma cannon to like try to <laughs> right. dig out the position. But everyone's dug in mm-hmm. and they got, you know, they got their lanes. And if you screw up and end up in that lane when they're when it's their turn, you're 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 toast. Right, exactly. So it becomes the tactical situation almost becomes it's almost like chess like, right? You know, yeah. like in chess if you, so. if you move into a specific spot then, you know, uh like I've joked sometimes. I'm not a particularly great chess player. I can hold my own against people who are not good chess players, but I, <laughs> I will mean? definitely lose. Maybe. Uh, I haven't played a long time other than a little bit on the computer. Uh, but I've often joked that I play chess as a World War I trench battle because I like to play very slowly and cautiously. Like each piece has multiple like covering, you know, which, of right. course, anyone who's good at the game can can like figure out how to outmaneuver and take the initiative and then it's all over. But well, it works really it works really well against people who aren't good at chess because they have a really difficult time kind of breaking into the position. Mm hmm. Um, but yeah, so from a tactical perspective, it becomes really interesting. You know, like if you think of, um, like you have five men sitting in a row of trees somewhere, you know, they each have five shots in their rifles. They can fire those off, you know, like one, one shot per second and still have okay time to aim. And it takes a couple of seconds to reload. Like how much firepower can they lay down? If you're marching into the field that they're watching, in a matter of 30 seconds, like a standard game turn in a lot of games. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's a so frightening amount. Yeah, that's a frightening amount of firepower. Um, there's really no standing up to that. Um, so you get the situation where you either have to be, you know, on your belly and crawling and you're not moving very fast. Like you said, you have to bring some firepower. And it translates forward too. Like you mentioned sci-fi, like let's say they're, you know, robo troopers with laser rifles. They log on as soon as they spot you and their laser will burn right through your armor. What's your tactics look like now? Mm-hmm. Well, they're not going to look like uh, marching across the field and fight them with your laser sword. You're going <laughs> right, right. to be toast. You know, like, so what are you going to do? Are you going to tunnel under them? Are you going to fly over? Are you going to hit them with artillery? Um, so it's a... In a way, you know, like if you're gaming it out, honestly, like you don't even have to create like special mechanics to capture the feeling. Uh, because if you're, if the rules you're using are relatively like realistic when it comes to firepower, it'll create the situation almost automatically, you know, like there's just no way of, um, of just rushing forward, rushing into it, which means the terrain starts mattering a whole lot. You start having to look for, um, 
you know, there's a couple of rocks halfway there. And if I run across to there, then I can get one guy over there and he can start laying some fire. And, you know, like, you know how Mm -hmm. it goes. Right, right. Um, I was thinking, like, listening to the the section of your presentation on on the uh, the French offensive, it -hmm. could be really interesting to play a game or a campaign where you're that force that's moving into a situation where you're outgunned, Mm -hmm. but you don't know it. So then the situation becomes you've got your squad and you're trying to just navigate your way through this hopeless situation and survive, not win, just get out while everything is going crazy around you. Sure. That would be super interesting. You know, like you go into the battle and you maybe like this campaign begins at the morning after the first battle. Like the battalion has been torn to pieces. You have like you and your squad are still alive. You're in a ditch somewhere. You realize that like your unit has disintegrated around you and everyone else has fallen back and you have to get, you know, like you have to regroup with them. So you get sort of that like uh, like lost patrol kind of. You know, um, for sure. And you might have like we played a World War Two campaign a long time ago, which was in um, for the French, um, where it was a little bit like that, actually, from what I remember. You guys were French Foreign Legion and you had to kind of navigate your way back. And it was kind of like a, you know, like I remember we did like a full on like hex maps and everything, because I think we right. all, all wanted to try that. Right. But it was almost like a tactical experience, even though it was still an RPG. So, you know, there were RPG style decisions to make. But it was also a tactical thing of like keeping track of which troopers and who was wounded and so on. Um, sure. And that would be really interesting too, because that also kind of solves the problem, right? Like the issue that anyone is going to bring up when you say we're going to play a game that has this heavy firepower is that's cool, but we're all going to be dead. <laughs> well, so, yeah, you run into the the palladium problem with with mega damage. Right. It's like, like I made my little the, character, but when I look at this math, like none of it works. Right. Like it's playing it's like playing Rift, but nobody has uh armor with MDC. So the right. first time you get hit, you take three hundred hit points of damage and that's it, bro. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you gotta have a solution to that. Uh and if you want the campaign to feel realistic, you can't really give the players too much like plot immunity. So having, you know, like if you're commanding a squad and each of us has three characters, essentially, or you just grab one, like my guy just got shot in the stomach, like I'm going to grab the other dude and we're going to, you know, like a lot of games will have, you know, like a profile for like a typical soldier, right? Right. Uh, So you can just use that. You adjust it a little bit. You add some personality traits to it. Maybe you even do it cooperative. You sit down before and you pick out, like, everyone, like, names a personality trait for each of the ten guys. And then you name a second fact that everyone knows. Like, all right, so the the kind of funny guy, he's actually also a habitual liar. And the quiet guy, he owes a lot of money back home. And that's why he joined. You know, you just add. That's all you need, right? Like, it's a war movie. Oh, for sure. Right, you know, right. you, you got the disillusioned guy who uh, wants to, who doesn't think he's going to make it back home. You got a guy with a picture of his girlfriend who wants to be a car mechanic after the war. Like, that's all you need. Because um, it's really a, like, it's a tactical or a survival experience, right? Yeah. I, uh, the survival aspect is really interesting. Mm-hmm. You could go all out even, you know, like, uh, how much food are you carrying? How are you going to get food? Are you going to... Right. You know, if you win a skirmish, do you take some time to, like, steal their food? Mm-hmm. Like, 
sure, now you're supplied, or maybe you have to, like, is ammunition running low? Because you're burning through it pretty fast. Are you going to, like, pick up German weapons? You know, like, there's a lot. That would be really interesting to do. Like, uh, play it up. You know, uh, like, some games do have rules for this kind of stuff. You know, if you've gone without food, you're at a certain penalty. But otherwise, it's easy enough to add. You know, like, you start, you know, you move a little slower if you haven't rested. You don't shoot as well if you're thirsty. And, you know, like, you can make it pretty simple. Like, you know, like... Um, say every day, you know, like you have your three in each, you need food, you need water and you need rest. And for each of those you're missing, you get a minus one on a D20 or whatever the system is. Sure. You just have to balance that out to make sure you're not penalizing two people too badly to the point where (laughs) they can't fight anymore. Yeah. Well, I think it's okay to let them get to that point if they had options to not get there. Mm. So, you know, like, do you see a farmhouse off in the distance? Well, that'll solve our food problem. But it's also going to get us further away. Like, the clock is ticking, right? You yeah. know, like, in 10 days, the Germans are going to be, like, too far behind you, and you're just going to be surrounded. So do you spend three hours uh, going and ransacking that farmhouse? Yeah. You it's know? Interesting. Right. Like, you could... I think it would take a lot of planning. Like, you would... I, I think what I would do is I would take a map of... You could go at Google Maps. It's got a modern map um because like you can find books with like military maps of the time but they're really difficult to read um, sure <laughs> they got all so sorts just, of stats yeah and they're uh, they're often like very concerned with like contours like height levels that's maybe more right. than you really need um so you just go into google earth uh google maps and you find a map of like your your spot in france or belgium mm-hmm. um and you measure it out like how far you know figure out how far could you walk in a day while you're carrying stuff um, and then you mark off like, okay, so on day one, this is where the Germans have gotten to. On day two, they've gotten to this village and here on day three. So now you have the, like the advance of time, you know, if, mm-hmm. so if the players like bunk down in a barn somewhere and they wake up and you, on your map, it shows the Germans are only like half a mile away. They're going to wake up and they're going to hear like the, the marching and the, the sound of guns and everything. And they're going to realize that it's time to go. Right. Um, and you could, um, if you're, this is getting to be a lot of prep work, but you could even mark on the map, like, you know, like they're going to have like cavalry patrols and they're going to have skirmishers ahead. So you can even mark on the map what locations there's going to be patrols at on a given day or just like draw an arrow, you know? Yeah. I mean, you could set up. Hmm. So I, it I like on the idea much... of like tables, you know, like mm-hmm. you could set up. You could be check it like set up a table of like possible events like the the cavalry uh, scouting group rolling through. I just uh, yeah, you mix, could I don't know it, just uh, a bunch like, of random possible or there's like uh-huh. civilians they might be able to offer food. You know, mix it up with like good and bad things. You run into right. a spy or a, a, a scout that's an ally mm-hmm. or a foreign national. You know, maybe. It, I don't yeah, know. You could have a lot of drop and yeah, just not periodically so many, roll on that stuff. Yeah, not so many paratroopers here, but uh, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> uh, but point well taken, though. Um, yeah, you could easily you could combine both. I think probably the the best is you have kind of the random things happening to make it because you still want it to be interesting as a GM, right? You don't want to just narrate what happens, right? Um, and then with the main army being kind of like. Like on schedule, because you want, I think what you want to get across is that the main German force is this like unstoppable, like 
you know, menace that is just advancing inexorably. Mm. Like it's uh, like playing FTL, right? Where after each turn, like the enemy, like the evil empire army or fleet, like moves up on the map and certain locations become unavailable to you. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, And you could even have, like I read a lot of random tables for games. um, And one of the things you can do very easily is you can make weighted tables. So you might have one table that is for open terrain where you're more likely to meet certain things and other things are less likely. If you go, sure. if you move near a village, you have a different table for that, or even just weight the results differently. Mm-hmm. So if you're in the open, you have a, like a one to eight on a D20 as a cavalry patrol. But if it's a village, it's only a one or a two because they're less likely to go there or, you know, whatever. Right. So you can, cause that way, even if the players don't know that the odds are different, one, they're going to assume that it must mean something, right? Like if they go to a house, that should typically result in something different. But they're also going to notice it, I think, subconsciously maybe, uh, that, you know, like being in the open is more dangerous for us uh, because we keep being attacked. Well, yeah, you're getting feedback from the setting and the environment, Uh which is really cool. Yeah, that is would be really cool. Um, And I think it also gives you a chance because I think some of the danger is that you get a game where only combat skills matter. And that's not really the case, right? Like, you're going to need guys who can scout. You're going to need guys who can sneak. You're going to need guys who maybe knows a couple of languages. Mm. Uh, first aid, leadership to keep morale up. Like, I think you could probably, because a lot of RPGs have, you know, like, long skill lists. You could probably start, like, cutting them out. Mm. Um, like, there's a lot of skills you're not going to use. But I think there's a much wider range than I think you would assume at first, mm-hmm. you know. <clears throat> and I think if you have... Um, you know, in games where you can assign your skill points or whatever. Well, I would say, I mean, the thing for for me as a player in a lot of games is I look at that skill list and I think, when, like, all, a lot of this stuff looks cool. Yeah, but is it ever going to happen? Right. Yeah, yeah. And usually <laughs> it's not. The frustrating thing is it, it's not going to happen because <laughs> yeah. it's a, a pain. None of the other players want to do those things. Yeah, so or it just happens guy. like it didn't come up in the adventure, right? Yeah. You know, uh, we were laughing um, a couple of months ago when we were playing Pendragon because uh, there's a boating skill on the character sheet. And like one, boating never comes up in games anyway. And B, it's about knights and King Arthur's England. It is 100 percent not going to come up. And then it did. They had to go out on boats and they had to like try and fight on the boats and try to steer <laughs> while fighting these monsters. And we were laughing at it because it was like the first time any of us had ever rolled for like a boating skill in a game. But finally it <laughs> happened, you know. That's funny. So, yeah. But you're right. Like a lot of times you can kind of uh, – I've joked before that um, when you're creating a character for any game, even if you don't know what the game is about, uh, make sure your character can fight in some way. Uh, make sure – that they have first aid skill and put your points into like whatever perception is called in the game. Cause you're always going to be rolling to see things. So if your right. character can shoot a little bit and if they can see things and you can like make yourself and not die, you're going to be fine. But I like what you're saying <laughs> here because it makes me think about um, like from the game master's perspective, mm-hmm. integrating those sorts of like non-combat interactions Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and making sure that's part of the game, so you 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 scale back the number of va- of available optional skills. Mm-hmm. But in doing that, you can kind of inform people like, yeah, th- this stuff actually matters. So it's someone you probably want to have someone that can do this stuff because it's going to come up in the game. 
Yeah, and you can kind of gamify it a little bit too. You know, if whenever you meet an encounter, it's going to depend on a scan check for you to mm. figure out who's coming before they're upon you. Yeah. The player's going to key into that real quick. You know, or if it takes twice as long to search every time. Like, let's say, like in a lot of games, there's this tendency when you roll to search a place or you, to search something, and if you fail the roll, you just find nothing. Well, what if right. you say you still find it, but it takes twice as long? Oh, for sure. So, you know, like you spend half an hour ransacking this farmhouse and the GM has you roll for search and you fail and he asks, okay, like you're pretty sure there's some food hidden here, but are you going to take another half hour to find it? Right. And in the meantime, you're concerned that that maybe some enemy scouts or an mm -hmm. auxiliary force is going to bumble right up on you and all of a sudden... Yeah. Or the, the angry farmer who's less enthused. He might be patriotic, but you're eating his chickens. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, you could even make it that simple, you know, like, say, hey, like, you failed the roll. I will let you find it, but I'm going to roll on the encounter table. Right. <laughs> that could turn out good. It might not. How, how lucky do you feel? Right. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that makes it, uh, that could make it a really interesting situation. I think this is definitely would be, the way it's shaping up, I think, would be uh, a very different kind of campaign. I think it would be exhausting to play for a long time. But yeah. I think it's something that would be really cool for like a short burst, you know, like four or five sessions where you're, I mean, you could almost like reskin it, right? Like you could, if you're going, if you're one of those dudes who like runs games at conventions, you could reskin <laughs> it for, for Vietnam and just run the same campaign again. Oh, why? Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> or you could, you know, reskin it for like, if you want to do it as a fantasy game, it's the same thing. You're lost behind the, like the orc invasion or the hobgoblins are coming. And, well, they uh, also had like ogres. I mean, you could mm -hmm. uh, just set up different or like I all sorts of like insane, scary fantasy beasts that take the place of the artillery. Yeah, I was just thinking that instead of uh, artillery, you have like monsters, right? And yeah, like yeah. instead of ma machine guns, it's like a, an enemy wizard or a cleric or something. For sure, you know? like stone golems that are right? impervious. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they throw rocks at you. Or you yeah. can even make actually I would make it an undead invasion, because then you get the real like inexorable like gray legions kind of thing. Like there's no stopping or reasoning with them. They just keep coming. Yeah. Yeah, that's you great. Know, they have they have necromancers for support. So see, we got back to fantasy. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. So I think um there's a lot of really cool stuff you could do there. And I think you could do it in a lot of different ways. Uh and I think if pulled off well, it could be really memorable. I think it would be important for the players to go into it, um, like, agreeing that if we don't make it out, that's okay. Like, that's not, you know, you're seeing how far you make it, right? Yeah. Yep. Set expectations. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> yeah. Tell Steve to cut it out. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, Steve, you can't play a, a, an elf with wings this time. Right. Uh, true story. Uh, Robo <laughs> ninja warriors got to stay home. Uh, true story before I hand it over to uh, the next battle. Uh, back in the day, I ran a game of GURPS uh, World War One. The idea was it was going to be like a commando raid. So they were going to mm -hmm. like sneak in and they were going to get. Uh, the plan was I think the Germans were building some sort of like super tank. Um, yeah. And they had to like sneak in, they had to get a like uh, capture it or get the plans and then get mm -hmm. back out. 
Uh, so player number one, who was a big like military nerd like me, uh, made a character who's like a <laughs> sharpshooter in like the again the Canadian military. And player number two was kind of a dumb kid, but he was fine. He just made like a regular soldier. I think he wanted to make like a cook or something. So he was like uh, a soldier. That's kind of fun. Yeah, it was a fine character. He just wanted <laughs> he was one of those players who always wanted something that was like a little dumb, but yeah. it was still functional. And player number three was an idiot. Um, I, I say that lovingly because he was a really nice guy, but he was an idiot. Um, and he asked me, and I should have known better at this point, because <clears throat> uh, he asked me, like, hey, I don't know that much about the war, but I know that there was a lot of, like, colonial troops in the war, right? And I was like, yeah, mm. like a lot, millions and millions of, you know, Indians and Africans and everything else. Yeah. yeah. And he was like, okay, well, can I play one of them? Like, yeah, sure. Like, you guys can all be from different, you know, regiments. <laughs> So, what a colonial soldier in World War I actually looks like is a dude in a khaki uniform with a steel helmet and a rifle and bayonet. Of course, yeah. What he created was a full-on, like, African tribe warrior with a shield and spear and, like, feathers on his head. No. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And everyone just kind of looked at it as like, you're dead, make another character. (laughs) Heart attack. (laughs) Yeah, sorry, man. Like they didn't let that dude get out of like uh, <laughs> out of the the savannah or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's always one. So set expectations and I get Steve to can it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that's what I had. So now yeah. uh, I well, know for y- your conflict, we're still gonna have guns, but it's not quite as maybe a little more romantic, at least in popular imagination. Right, but unfortunately, at this point, we're kind of out of time. <laughs> so yeah. we'll have to talk about my battle next week. Well, that's fine. That gives us a, a whole episode to uh, to uh, delve into that. Um, yeah. And I happen yeah. to know, without spoiling too much, that it has an excellent movie attached to it. Yes, indeed. So classic um, of British cinema. I'm not going to spoil it tonight. <laughs> We're already getting really close because now everyone is going to be like Google, you're like British war movies, and that is, <laughs> right? comes up short. Uh, <laughs> That's okay. Uh, instead, go watch the World War One cinema. Don't spoil it, you goons. Um, go watch 1917 because it's absolutely amazing. Uh, even yeah. my wife, who hates war movies, uh, was fascinated by it. Just if you're interested in cinematography at all, it's amazing. Um, go watch the Canadian Passchendaele, uh, which is quite good. Um, a lot of people complain because they had to have like the love story in the middle. I actually sort of liked it, <laughs> um, but it. Maybe if it adds some context outside of the front, which I think the movie needs, but but it does feel a little, you know, like it's kind of the formula. On. Yeah, a little less than normal, but it definitely fe- can feel that way. Uh, but the yeah. final like trench battle is absolutely spot on. It's one of the most like grueling and miserable things you've ever seen on TV. <laughs> um, there's the old um, All Quiet on the Western Front, um, yeah. which is obviously a classic. Um, there's the old black and white one, which is one everyone prefers, and then there's a color, um, like, made-for-TV version. They're both really good. Uh, I like them both. Um, either one is fine. Some people have a hard time watching, like, old black and white tele- or movies. It looks like someone took a... Sometimes it looks like someone took a magic marker to it. It's like, that color is weird. That's not the color of their actual clothes or their hair, especially if their hair looks like 
Yeah, little Johnny got his marker <laughs> set out and just me. Yeah, or they have that like uh, like everything moves just a little bit too quickly. Mm-hmm. Like they get that kind of like right. stuttering movement, and it has a little bit of that. But it's still it's still a great movie. Um, but if nice. that's that kind of stuff bothers you, I think the the color version um, is on one of the streaming services, so that's worth checking out. There might be another movie or two out there, but that I'm forgetting. But those are the ones I would check off the list. Yeah. Uh, pa- Passchendaele, 1917, and either version of All Quiet. Yeah. To get you get you some inspiration. Uh, none of them are all that optimistic, so uh, have yourself a drink first. Yeah. And don't forget that you can take these the basic scenarios and put them in other settings. Absolutely. I'm a big uh, fan of that. Don't Yeah. So, that's all I've got to add really. Oh, <laughs> you absolutely. Can, you can uh, make your your sci-fi World War 1 setting with trenches and uh-huh. find the reason why they can't move, what type of sci-fi thing locks them into this grueling yeah. kind of face-to-face trap. Right, the the robo trenches. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, you could set it in, you know, like a strange moon campaign. Like, nobody can bring heavy equipment because it's too expensive. Mm. So the corporations just send some foot troopers up to the to the moon of this planet or whatever. Um, or there, have you ever seen the movie Screamers? Actually, I didn't. I didn't like the trailer, so I was like, Bleh. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's, it's like 100% a B movie, but it, uh, it's really good. Um, but the whole idea is that uh, there's this like corporate war on a planet uh, for some resource. And one of the sides has invented these uh, like autonomous like buzzsaw robots that <laughs> they act as like homicidal like landmines essentially. Like if you're walking in an area and don't have like a little the right like gadget on you, they like mm. jump out of the ground and cut you to pieces and then they dismantle Fun. you for parts to uh, build more robots. Fun. So it's it's a super a B movie, but it has that same kind of thing where the war has been in stalemate for like years, and uh, ah. like nobody can go anywhere because there's homicidal bus or robots everywhere. Right, right. Um, yeah, it's a good, it's a great movie. Uh, as long as you're expecting like '80s like sci-fi schlock, for sure. <laughs> um, it also has the guy uh, from RoboCop in it, so and he's oh nice, he he's excellent in everything. Yeah, so cool. Uh, but yeah, so you can definitely sci-fi it up, get some laser guns. It can still be miserable and awful, and the robots can uh, muse about whether it'll be home before Robo Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks a lot for checking in again with us, everyone, and have a great week. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, let us know how you enjoyed this deviation, and we will be back with you next week. Yeah, uh, we actually had had an email address for a while that I never talk about, but you can always email <laughs> us at uh, hex night podcast hex under sorry h e x underscore night underscore podcast at yahoo.com. Yeah, and that's the the night on the horse, not the night without the sun, right? Although yeah. some nights could be uh at night at night, and that makes it confusing. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I hope everyone has an excellent evening. <laughs> Bye.